Today's dialogue is with Greg Thomas, a leading cultural analyst, integral thinker, musician, educator, speaker, and founder of the Jazz Leadership Project. Greg offers powerful, deep analyses and appreciation of Black history, culture, and contributions, and uses jazz as a metaphor and training program for cultivating social and leadership skills and developing ways of harmonizing and contributing together. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I want to say that without sounding like a cliche, but we have a very special guest and I am extremely excited about it because I've been getting into your stuff and more listening to your talks and other podcasts because after about an hour and a half, my eyes start bugging out. And I was so deeply moved by so much of the stuff was I was hearing and it was so just on so many levels, it was enlightening and just excellent stuff. So Greg, I don't know all your degrees and stuff, but you are a a scholar of jazz and blues, stuff that I love, and also uh, a teacher and a sage maybe in, in the ideas of racism and how that plays into our narrative as Americans. I think you're, you're doing it from a a really high and integrated and wise level. And I think more people need to hear what you have to say. And I can't wait to to talk about this because something that's really both music and the other side of the street, the things I've been very passionate and struggled with nearly my whole life. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much, John. It's so great to join you on your Deep Transformation podcast. And thank you also, Roger Walsh. I appreciate both of you for the invite. Well, our pleasure. And let's see, there's so much we can cover. I know John and you are both musicians and share that. I am uh, kind of musically challenged, so I will try to nod wisely and pretend I understand that part of the conversation. But I've also been getting into your work and got quite excited reading your articles and listening to some of the interviews you've done and some of the fights you got into with people on interviews, which were very entertaining from the outside. Oh, anyway, I love that stuff. It's good. But John, would you like to lead off? Yeah, I just have all these notes and just exclamation marks and, and my crazy handwriting. And one of the things as my, where I start musically over the last decade and a half is with the blues. You know, I grew up in the 60s and all the influence of African-American music. And of course, the Beatles and the revolution, the thing that happened over in Europe was completely, they were just grabbing on to, to black music from the United States. And it started a revolution and came back over here and blessed us. And one of the things in, in kind of the, I don't know, the PC world, the woke world, there's this idea of cultural appropriation. I just, I'm sorry, you lost me. I ain't going to stop playing the blues. And can white men get the blues? Trust me, we can get the blues. And it's a music that desperately speaks to my soul. And I'm living now in the South, and I'm a product of the South, but back here as an adult. And I'm living right in the Louisiana, Mississippi Delta region. I'm so excited to be here in this land that birthed this this art form that has completely been somebody, an old Black guy said one time, he said, Blues is the roots and everything else is the fruits. So amen to that. And so I'm, I'm just interested to, to talk about that. And you kind of got me over my dilemma. You said it's not misappropriation if you handle it with respect. Acknowledge the source, acknowledge the roots, where it comes from. And when a people or a group of people or however that's birthed something into the world, then that belongs to the whole world. And why does it speak so deeply to us? Because we all know the blues, no matter what shade of whatever we are. Anyway, I'll just, that'll be my opening, Sally. All right. Well, did not the Buddha say that life is suffering? That's right. That's the blues. The blues is about the inherent tragic dimension 
of human life. I mean, so that is a universal reality. And the blues is a specific manifestation that derived from the experience of my idiomatic kinfolk. I use the term Black Americans as an ethnic cultural signifier. You can say Afro-Americans. You can say African-Americans. But the point is, there's a group of people who had an experience, so who collectively had an experience of shared, tragic, not only tragic dimensions of life through enslavement, Jim Crow, et cetera, but actually got very familiar with absurdity. Think about it. I mean, when you when you look at, when we talk about race and racism and the ways that these categorizations, which we'll talk about much more, have actually been employed for people to then tap into an identity based on a very false idea, it actually goes into the absurd. Now, now, when we talk about tragedy, comedy, the absurdity, we're kind of talking about you know literary terms, and that's a very strong part of my perspective derived from the work of some of my intellectual and cultural heroes that we'll talk about also, very strongly grounded in humanity. So literature, music, philosophy, and such. So as far as appropriation, <laughs> one of those heroes, Ralph Ellison, author of the 1952 American novel classic, Invisible Man, one of the things he said in his essays is that appropriation is the way culture actually works. People see things, styles, idiomatic ways of being and products. Um, uh, they see, what would we call it? Artifacts. They see the way other people do things, the way they cook, the way they move, the way they dance, the music they make. And because we share common humanity, it's like, hmm, that is interesting. Let me try that on for size. Another one of those intellectual heroes of mine is Albert Murray, author of, of close to 15 books on blues, jazz, American culture, Black American experience. And one of the things that he said that I think is very insightful, he says that when we look at difference, said oftentimes there are two ways that that people respond to difference. One way is through being, you know, xenophobic. Oh, that's different. We're afraid of that. And that's that's very well documented, very well known. But he also said, but there's also exotica where you're attracted to difference. So it's like, hmm, let me check that out. So you know, cultural appropriation is a misunderstanding of the way culture actually works. But if someone, say, an individual or a group of people, say that they created an art form or a technology that they did not create and they take credit for it, one could say that that is appropriation, theft. <laughs> right. But it's it's it, so that concept betrays a, a real lack of understanding of cultural dynamics. You're sparking a couple of ideas, Greg. One is looking across history. It turns out that some of the most creative and fertile geographic areas have been in the intersection of cultures, where cultures meet. Turns out, just historically, those have been the places where creativity has really flourished. And what you're saying about appropriation makes so much sense. It basically, you know, I'm an academic. We're talking plagiarism here. The difference right. between citing a, citing a reference, acknowledging where you got the idea or the or the music or the whatever, versus pretending it's your own. Exactly, plagiarism is a yeah. That's really what they mean. But then be very specific. This is a little too loosey goosey with the way it's used, you know? Uh, but I appreciate what you're saying historically when we talk about the intersection of 
different cultures, traditions, peoples, that is a fertile ground for creativity and cultural development. I mean, look at the Fertile Crescent. You know, when you look at ancient Egypt and you look at the Mediterranean and the mixture of various lands and how that just blossomed. And then if you look at, well, I'll leave it there because we have so much to discuss. So I do agree that that is a great example of, of how flourishing happens through difference coming together and manifesting as something new or different or variations on a theme. Yeah, and, and among musicians, I think the segregation lines began to really dissipate maybe before other parts of our culture because musicians, real musicians, they don't care what color your skin is. Can you play? Exactly. Can you play? And they, yes, all of my, my white blues heroes like Johnny Winters and Eric Clapton, anyway, there's a bunch, they super acknowledge the sources. They right. talk about it and honor it all the time. And when Cream was writing their songs, they're rocking blues-infused jazz. They were getting these songs from these old bluesmen who were really broken, had no money. And all of a sudden, they had all these paychecks coming in and were able to get operations and, and extend their lives and careers for decades in some cases. So I, I think it, it, among musicians, there's a deep, deep love from our sources. I was listening to you on the Glenn Show last night. For those who don't know, Glenn Lowry. Yeah, terrific. John McWhorter and you and Glenn Lowry were talking. And arguing. <laughs> oh, yeah, and arguing. But parts of it, I mean, it was great. I love how you, you know, you struggled with it. But I, I, I was so moved. And, and I'm trying to hold my stuff together now and stop, not weep. But I just realized how deeply, deeply I've been influenced by the gift of, of Black culture and music and how it shapes my life. Every day I play it. And I listen to it and I go back to the earliest recordings and everything I can learn about it. I just deeply love it. And I am so blessed by it. And when we met at the conference, the WTF conference, I didn't quite get a chance to listen to everything you were saying. And I was, I don't care what they say. I'm not leaving this music that I love, you know, that, that comes through me. And I'm talking a lot. But another thing that comes through about the blues, because it can be funny. It can be sarcastic, it can be really sexy, or it can be extremely sad. But it is a, it is a, I think it's a, a shadow practice for me because, you know, I feel these things deeply and it comes through me when I'm really on, not, you know, all the time, but when I'm on, it, it comes through me and it helps heal me. And I feel the transformative power of this, this art form. And I just love it. And the jazz is something I moved to from the blues and I can, I love improvisation and I can't do all the chordal work, but I can play notes with anybody, you know, and find these strange, mysterious patterns that, that jazz musicians come up with. Anyway. For those who don't know, when you say WTF, because that has a certain signification out here in, in mainstream terms. So you're talking about what's the future integral conference in Sedona. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just, Thank let's you, just, Greg. You're very welcome. <laughs> um, yeah, just to just to comment on a few things that you said. You know, when you're talking about, and you said black culture, I usually have the term American in there because when you say black culture by itself, it can very often signify race. And as you all know now, as the two of you know, I make a clear distinction between race and culture. I think it's very important to make that distinction. So I say Black American culture. As far as the culture, the mentifacts and artifacts, the values and meaning that manifested in various specific forms, forms of thought, forms of style, forms of artistic creativity and production, what we're talking about is a fundamental tributary to American history and American culture, okay? So one of the things that Ralph Ellison said is that when Black Americans, he called us Negro Americans or American Negroes, that was his generation's phrase, 
when we didn't have political, social, or economic freedom, what we did have was the culture or through culture actually define who we were as a people and represent our highest values and aspirations through the arts. So when you look at the spirituals, 19th century, and what they signify, and you look at the blues, more of a secular form, and then you look at jazz, which has all kinds of tributaries, but blues is the foundation. We're talking about fundamental American creations, okay? So if we can move away from thinking just in racial terms, because race was actually created for the specific purpose of dividing, dividing and conquering, to use that phrase. But if we look at it through cultural terms, we can say, oh my goodness, you know, if you live in a place or in places with other people, there's going to be cross influences. And the Black American component of, of American history, experience, and culture is so profound that it's no, there's no surprise that you've been so deeply influenced by it. And by the same turn, I, as a Black American, if you look at it through a cultural lens as opposed to a racial lens, we can say that part of my heritage is an African heritage, but part of my heritage is a European heritage also, because as an American, both of those are in there. So again, a, a cultural view where to riff on, on Ken's, Ken Wilbur's four quadrants, where in the lower left quadrant, we're talking about shared values, shared identities, shared traditions. Then you realize that we share so much more than a racial worldview will allow us to admit. See what I mean? Yeah. 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 And I think, I think that's one of your real contributions that you're, you're, making here as you as you're dissecting what these complex terms of race and racialization etc mean and i'd like to get into that but i also want to fill out a little bit more about your background greg because you you talk about multi-dimensionality and you are and we haven't even touched on the fact that you also have a, a very deep and long-term spiritual side to you and maybe it'd be nice to have uh, know a little bit about that side. Thank, of you. thank you, Roger. How did I miss that? Yes, indeed. Well, thank you. I mean, one of the things that I, I like to share, I mean, I was born into a family that was Christian and is Christian. On my mother's side is more of a Pentecostal or holiness orientation. On my dad's side, African Methodist Episcopal. So that's part of my own religious roots. So from the integral perspective, we could say that's a traditional orientation. I'd say during college, I went to Hamilton College from 1981 to 1985. That's when I came into a real grounding in modernity. I mean, you're we, we live in contemporary times. If you live in a period that we can call the modern age, you're going to have that anyway. But I'm talking about where the role of science and rational thought and doubt <laughs> came online for me. It was during college. And then in graduate school, I went to graduate school at NYU, doctoral program in American studies from 1996 to 1999. And that's when I really got a grounding in a postmodern, academic, postmodern, post-structuralist perspective. And that's also at the same time that I started reading Ken Wilbur. I, I started reading Ken by going into East-West books in the village, Greenwich Village, and seeing, I would go in there periodically because I've always been interested in various religions and metaphysics and such. And I saw this picture of this very serious looking gentleman, bald-headed, and the name of the book, the audacious name of the book was A Brief History of Everything. I'm like, whoa, really? 
<laughs> Boy, that's ballsy. You know, I got to check this out. <laughs> and oh my goodness, it was true. It truly is a brief history of everything. And it began my journey into integral meta theory and integral philosophy, which allowed me to put a lot of things in perspective in terms of my own life experience, but also my studies. And instead of just being subject to these things and these various worldviews, to have a subject-object relation, to be able to analyze it and say, hmm, okay, I can make these distinctions, I can see the connections. But I got to say this, for me, it didn't happen in the usual order. So I mentioned my traditional background as a Christian. I mentioned modernity during college and post-modernity during graduate school. But there's something that I haven't talked about publicly before, which I'll be glad to get into if you would like to. A pre-traditional experience of studying African a syncretism of African religions and going back to ancient Egypt. I mentioned the Fertile Crescent before. And at the same time, studying Taoism, using the I King, becoming a vegan, <laughs> doing monthly rituals where ancestors and deities would be evoked and invoked. I experienced that after my traditional. So it so I I this is why for me an integral perspective isn't only an intellectual thing. It's not just an intellectual line of development. I have embodied these various worldviews in my own experience which then allows me to feel compassion for folks who are, as as they as we say via spiral dynamics, first tier, I have because I have lived that myself, you know. Yep. So I, I just wanted to mention that because, and it was during that time, Roger, that I studied Kabbalah. I mentioned Taoism, Yi King, being a vegan, African syncretism, but we studied Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, which then prepared me to really be able to understand integral theory from the perspective that through Kabbalah, you have a map called the tree of life. That is a cosmogonical perspective in that this is like saying, how did everything begin? You begin with no things, zero. You begin with infinite potential, infinite awareness, consciousness. And then there's a process through which the infinite becomes finite, the immaterial becomes material, where the non-dual becomes dual. And I studied this particular system for several years. It's been about 30 years ago now. But so when I came to Ken and I saw the quadrants and I saw, you know, Aquil and I, I had a grounding in an understanding through visualization, through those visuals, how you connect different parts of a general ecology of practices an ecological perspective that looks at how and systemic perspective, how do these things fit together? So, I mean, for me, uh, I, I've tried to integrate all these things and then on top of it, or maybe underneath it, my understanding of a, what I call a blues idiom, intellectual tradition and wisdom tradition that comes through not only the music itself, but those who have, and I'm going to go a little deeper than normal. If you talk about the eight zones of Aquil, of the four quadrants, you know, you have those in the, I think the fourth zone, lower left, those who are in the zone, but can take a perspective on it to analyze it and present it. So I say this because Albert Murray, Ralph Ellison are fourth zone masters. 
they were able to look at American culture and Black American culture and really look at it through an kind of an anthro-ontological perspective, or you could say a philosophical anthropology. And so they dealt with the meanings, the rituals of Black American culture related to American culture. And it gave me this deep understanding of myself as a Black American and an American. So all of that for me is what I have synthesized and I work with as I now step up and step into the world to try to share with others my perspectives, because I really feel we're in, and we talk about a metacrisis, we are in a polycrisis, metacrisis, so many things that are needed. And to deal with the range and depth of the wicked problems we have ultimately is going to take wisdom. I think that based on my studies and my lived experience, I'm able to share some perspectives that can hopefully give us some ways out of some of the dilemmas that we're in. Yeah, I wanted to to bring up, you know, you talked about going back and, and studying some of the ancestral wisdom and, and I would say pre-modern, pre-Christian roots that we all have. And what I have found in my experience, I had a Native American mentor, very wise and beautiful man. Some of the medicine that we get from it is it helps us to understand and express our reverence for the earth and for nature and for the world as it is. Somehow in Christianity, we, you know, we shuffle that off. I don't know what we do with it, but, but in that, those traditions, I already felt it deep in my heart, but they helped me to bring it out that it was okay. And I wasn't a nut. And I was wondering if you kind of experienced that in your, in your exploration. I would say so. I would say that when we talk about indigenous wisdom, there is a felt relationship with the earth and with nature. And we definitely lost that with the advent of a, you know, Cartesian way of looking at things, you know, with Descartes and rationality during the scientific age, the advent of modernity, capitalism, so that rather than being in in reverence and in relationship with nature, it's like, oh my goodness, let's exploit nature. Let's extract what we can from it and use it for our own benefit. And so one of the beauties of, the, of an integral perspective is that we can look at all from a pre-traditional, indigenous, ancestral, to traditional, modern, and even postmodern, and see the pros and cons and see the light and the shadow in each and attempt to integrate within ourselves and within our communities the best aspects of each. That's never been done in human history. And that's the challenge and the hope, I think, of an integral movement and an integral community. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And, and I just want to recap the development process you went through to allow you to come there, because, yes, you're pointing to the capacity to take multiple perspectives, which is crucial. But it was a hard-won journey you went through. You described very distinct phases and going through the pre-modern, modern, post-modern, and then running across Ken Wilber's work and being able to take a meta-perspective on, on those phases. And But go, doing more than that, actually integrating these perspectives in yourself and in your life. And so this is a hard one place you've come to. And you begun began to talk about this, Greg, but I want to ask you to go further. You, you were talking about how saying, okay, you could look at things from a variety of perspectives, and that was really helping you and illuminating, for example, your understanding of the metacrisis. How else do you see your spiritual background and your integral understanding empowering or facilitating your understanding of the social and global issues and enabling you to respond more effectively? Thank you. I mean, one of the things that I learned during my studies in, in this community 
which was, was actually a community based in Brooklyn. And then it further continued as I studied other philosophies and such, is that one of the fundamental spiritual problems is our separation or our feeling or thought that we are separate from each other, that we are separate from nature, that we are separate from, from the divine, that that's a fundamental issue and problem. Now, one of the things that we don't want to fall prey to is a pre-trans fallacy where we think that the oneness perspective or the feeling that we had of everything being part, you know, being in the womb of life or being in the womb and that type of experience of oneness is the ultimate. We, we know that it's, that it's not. No. But, and this is, let me see, what's the name of the book? I think it was written, it came out in 1990 or the early 90s. It's a book on Western philosophy. I'm just looking at my shelves now. It talks, it goes through the whole history of Western philosophy. I, I, I don't remember the name right offhand and I don't see it. The point <laughs> is that in the process of developing Western thought and Western philosophy, there was this necessity for mankind, but particularly men, to come into his own, to be a sovereign agent in the world, right? So that's separating from the, I don't know, is it called the anima mundi? I'm trying to think of certain expressions that I've read about, you know, decades ago, but this oneness, this feeling of, of interconnection of everything, but that the challenge now is to, with our knowledge, all that we understand about the universe, ourselves as humans on earth, how we are interconnected. The challenge is to, and, and this gets to the kind of the spiritual dimension of, of American democracy. E pluribus unum, and I usually don't talk about this, but when you talk about the spirituality, out of many one, think about that from a spiritual perspective. That is a powerful spiritual declaration out of many one. So that is like our challenge, not only as Americans, but as a humanity, that we have all of these differences, these distinctions. We have ourselves as individuals that, you know, we have our own consciousness. We are separate from other beings. We have our own subjective, phenomenological way of seeing the world, but we also are connected with others intersubjectively, or to riff on John Verveke, transjectively. And then we have objective reality. We have, you know, material reality. We have systems and structures and, and that we all also live within. So our challenge, our spiritual challenge, I think, is to how do we maintain the many and the differentiation, respect that, but how can we also embrace the oneness? And the, but that fundamental separation, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, ugh, it's getting me that I, that I don't see the book and I can't remember, I mean, the, the passion of the Western mind. The passion That's of the Western right. mind. I knew you were talking about that. I the passion that. of the Western mind. Rick Tarnas's book, a wonderful, wonderful okay. volume history of yes. philosophy. Thank you. I love at the end of that work how he says that the passion of the Western mind and the directionality, kind of the telos, is going to a place where we re-embrace the feminine. We re-embrace that which we come from and come out of. And we come out of the universe, the cosmos, and nature. But we don't, we didn't create that and, and let me be, get real we didn't create that shit we were blessed with it so we have to respect it honor it be in coordination and collaboration with it and with each other and not think that we can just dominate it and extract the resources with no with with with, with no consequences no 
The meta crisis shows that there are consequences. And if we don't get our shit together quick, we might not make it as a humanity. Yeah. And I'm not a fatalist, but in the last few years, I've, the study I've done shows that the meta crisis and the poly crisis is real. And we better, we better enough of us, a tipping point, a, a critical mass of us who have the awareness, the consciousness, the perspective, the multi, the ability to be multi-perspectival will need to exercise those abilities in the world so that we can help ourselves, our families, our, our, our neighborhoods and communities, our regions, our nations to get our act together before it's too late. Amen. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Greg. Yes. And we're clearly in a race between consciousness and catastrophe. And mm. Odds don't look good right now. I, I have so, something that I've got to get off my chest while I have you and Roger here. This doesn't happen all the time, like first time ever in my life. So I'm a developmentalist. Okay. One of the very powerful things that I got from Integral was Spiral Dynamics and Kin's version and, and the different, you know, they, they all basically agree largely. And I study people, you know, I go into a town and I can tell you just by the clothes people are wearing, the cars, vehicles they're driving, advertisements, what meme I'm in here. So, but one of the things that comes out of the traditional, which is, you know, started kicking into maybe the human experience 5,000 years ago with- Like the axial age? You mean- the Yeah, axial the axial age. age. Thank you. I was, I was working for, but one of the weaknesses of it, or one of the problems that develops that has to be worked through or grown out of- is ethnocentrism. So are we all just because of who we are, we grow through and would you equate ethnocentrism with racism? It certainly could be, you know, at some point, we like people like ourselves, care more about them than the other guys. And that can turn into the projections of the bad guys. But we all have that if we get that far. And most of us do in modern culture can get through the traditional or you were really blessed with a strong foundation in that. And I'm sure that was a great help in your, your growth. And you hear with the wokest and everything, everybody's a racist. Well, yeah, but maybe there's some truth there. At some point, it's just a natural part of human consciousness that we care more about our tribe and our family and people that look like us or talk like us than we do about other people. And if that is so, is that racism? And if that is some kind of proprietary early developing stage we have to go through. Maybe we shouldn't just attack people for doing what we're all going to do and we've all done. Maybe we should just promote more respect and and growth into these higher levels where that no longer becomes okay and acceptable and we can leave it aside. And I would ask you a question, is not some sort of ethnocentric, very similar to racism, if not the same thing. It's just a part of the evolutionary a ladder that we go through and, and eventually we grow out of it. And I guess the question that, that old Aesop's fable of the sun and the wind, we're trying to get the guy to take his coat off. So the wind went, the guy's going, oh, like this. And the sun just warmed up and he took it off. So I think sometimes just, I mean, I understand the outrage and anger, but after a while, just self-righteous, you know, beating people over the head about how screwed up they are is actually makes them hang on to it more than than maybe an understanding. This is what we all go through this. You know, it's a natural progression and we go through it. So and it's more fun up here if you're not there yet because it's more love. So, yeah. What do you think about that? And Roger, I invite you to comment, too. Yeah, I, I do agree that that's I mean, an ethnocentric perspective or one could say even a tribal perspective is really fundamental to, to human beings based on you know human development over ten, tens of thousands of years so that's definitely true in fact in 2010 during the integral spirituality a deeper cut series mm -hmm. i mentioned this in my presentation at sedona uh for the What's the Future Integral Conference last year, I asked Ken about race and racism, but from an integral perspective. And one of the things he said is that 
the ethnocentric stage in his formulation of spiral dynamics and amber stage, he says that that really is the foundation for what we call today racism, because you have different tribes, different groups of people. And I'm going to go back to my earlier reference to Murray with respect to xenophobia versus exotica. On the xenophobia side, it's fear of difference. Ooh, that's strange. What is that? Who is that? Are they human? What are they? You know, and so that is the that is the foundation. And, and we have to acknowledge that that's a part of our human heritage. But we also know that we, through the development of cities and, and nations, develop more of a cosmopolitan perspective. That's one of the reasons I lean on a concept of, of philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah, rooted cosmopolitanism, and also Harvard philosopher Daniel Allen, who discusses the same concept. You can be rooted in various traditions, but you can be cosmopolitan, a citizen of the world at the same time. But that kind of concept only develops once you have larger aggregations of people, once you have cities and, and nation states and that type of thing, and you have global travel. One of the things, <laughs> one of the things that Albert Murray said in his writings, he says, you know, look, we live under Greenwich Mean Time. That's one of the things he said to me. I went to him one day. He lived in Harlem in Lenox Terrace Apartments. And I had on a mud cloth a jacket, which is, you know, an African print. And that was after my Afrocentric period that I, that I mentioned to you all in terms of this community and my studies. And one of the things he says, man, don't you know we live under Greenwich meantime? <laughs> he said, don't you realize that when Nelson Mandela comes to the to the West, that he wears a Western suit? You know, <laughs> I mean, and, and what I'm getting to say is something that he would say. He would say, you know, when you talk about European civilization, you're talking about a civilization and a culture that actually mapped the world. They mapped, they, they literally mapped the world. So we couldn't even have an understanding of ourselves. Of course, people look at, you know, the astronauts going to the moon, and then you're seeing the picture of the, of the, of the entire earth. But before then, just mapping the world gave us a conception of the world that allow for a more cosmopolitan perspective, okay, by, by more people. So I guess to answer your question, ethnocentrism, tribalism is, is a root of racism, no question. But what Ken shared with me is that as we go through the various stages of development of consciousness and culture, at a certain point, it starts, it can it starts in modernity and continues in post-modernity, and certainly at the later stages, integral, you know, second tier, where the significance of race becomes almost meaningless because as what Murray called an index for human motivation, as a way of seeing how human beings actually interact from a cultural perspective, it's such nonsense. You know, race and racism and racialization says that, look, you have these different peoples. I mean, if you go to the 19th century, they talked about Caucasoid, Africoid, and Mongoloid Asians, okay? And then that was just one structure. And I'm, I'm pointing to that in the 19th century because that's when a lot of this crystallized into scientific race. And you had Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the sons of Noah. And they well, were- That was the, know, that's another the one. application of 
what what came from a mythological perspective or from the, the Old Testament as a religious justification because what was it? Was it Ham who looked at his father? He shouldn't have looked at his father naked. And that's why all those Africans became enslaved. They deserve to be punished for Ham looking in the wrong direction like 3,000 <laughs> years ago. That's not so, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so what we're talking about are these justification systems to justify exploitation, extraction, oppression. Okay, but the positive aspect of modernity, because one of the things that Ken talks about are the dignities and disasters of modernity, right? Yeah. So if you're talking about the dignities of modernity, it's during that period where enslavement in the West became outlawed eventually. So we have to look at that as one of the dignities of modernity. So that was the beginning of the place where we could fight against such barbaric practices. And then at personal modernity, Ken said, you know, it's like, it, it go a little too far. They actively deny any differentiation at all. It's like, you know, we're all just equal, you know, well, you're going a little far there, you know. That don't, that don't work either, yeah that we have to acknowledge and that are okay as long as we don't set up a hierarchical system of domination based on phenotypic characteristics based on ancestry you know we don't have to do that that's what happened but we don't have to do that but goodness we have to acknowledge differentiation i mean differences can be beautiful and are fine from the proper perspective. So yes, ethnocentrism, tribalism is a foundation. As we go through these developmental stages, the positive light aspects of them, we can grow beyond that way of seeing things while acknowledging that we do have differences that are fine to acknowledge. How did Dr. King tell us to judge people? <laughs> By the content of their character. That's it. There you go. It's not no judgment, but the content of your character. That's hugely big. I'm so interested in what Roger has to say about this. Me too. Well, I'm 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 getting an education first off, and I'm intrigued. I, I want to pull out just some things that you've both been pointing to. One is that the idea of ethnocentrism as a stage, the natural human inclination at certain developmental stages to go. And we should acknowledge that ethnocentrism is a step up from egocentrism. That yes. one has already moved. That's that's developed. One is already more mature than when we come into the world by far. But the, and there too, but ethnocentrism lends itself to us versus them and to domination of various kinds. And, this, and you're both pointing to two ways out of this. One is a healthy ethnocentrism, which recognizes our, our preference for ourselves and our kin, etc., and yet treats with humanity, compassion, etc., others. The other way out is a growing beyond ethnocentrism into world centrism. And even beyond that, we haven't mentioned the possibilities of what kin calls cosmocentrism, a universal cosmic identity as our, as our deepest and fullest identity. And then you also point to the traps, that each stage has its traps. Each individual developmental stage, each cultural evolutionary stage has its traps. And you were pointing there, Greg, to a very important one of the denial of a kind of, the intention is good, but the strategy of trying to move beyond oppression by denying any differences is denial. And denial is, you know, that's a defensive maneuver, which is not a very healthy way of seeing things. And the knowledge of ethnocentrism can be manipulated by bad faith characters to build on that. And as you said, it's the root of racism. So if you feed that root and you, you know, if you don't handle it wisely and not just hatefully, I mean, I get why people hate it. It's hateful, but that doesn't help. The, the problem. Well, we're looking for a way out of it. So knowing about that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Like all things in human knowledge, it could be used for good or ill. And it's been used for a lot of ill, that that tendency at that level of development to be ethnocentric or 
prefer pink people. I don't see myself as white. I'm pink, by the way. <laughs> well, Albert Murray said in his book, The Omni-Americans, in 1970, he says, any fool could see that so-called white people are not literally white and so-called black people are not literally black. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, and you're getting here into some very rich and deep concepts that I'm sure we want to unpack, Craig. One is, you know, one of your elements of your work of late has been uh, what you call deracialization. You wrote a very nice article considering deracialization. And implicit in that is you're getting into the very concept of our identity, which is a really fundamental concept. And it took me, actually took me a while to, to get the, what you were trying to do, but but as I got it, you were pointing to, there are layers to what, uh, and here's my understanding of some of what okay. you're trying to do. Great. That you were pointing to the fact that race, the term race is what's called a complex and contested category. That is, it's multi-layered and it's polysemic. That is, has multiple meanings. And it's also contested. One can look at it from different perspectives, some of them healthy, some of them less healthy. And from you, you know, you've mentioned genetic, historical, cultural, personal, social, etc. So I see you trying to do here, and there's a lot in this, do is kind of make sense of the complexity of these two terms, race and identity, and tease apart the different meanings and born of the recognition that so much of the current conflict is really born of differing interpretations of those concepts. And you reminded me of Confu Confucius. You know, Confucius was asked a question. He was His mission in life was to be a guide to rulers and, and a teacher. And he was asked an interesting question. Well, if you were, if you found a position where the ruler would do what you, would, you want, what would be the first thing you'd implement? He said, I think the first thing would be the rectification of names, by which he meant he would work to clarify our use of terms so we would have a common basis for understanding a dialogue. And that's what I see you doing, trying to rectify the rectification of names around these complex terms of race and identity. Love to hear your reflections. Am I getting what you're at? I appreciate that. That's that's one angle on it. And, and I think it's it's a good angle to come at it from. I, I would I would say a couple of things to add to that. You mentioned considering deracialization. That was the name of the of the essay when it was published at the Developmentalist, which is the publication, online publication of the Institute for Cultural Evolution, where I'm a senior fellow. And of course, one of your previous guests, Steve McIntosh, is the founder of the Institute for Cultural Evolution and the author of a great book, Developmental Politics and Others, that I all of which I've read. I would say that yes, we ended up we end up grappling over the, the the names, the concepts, these terms and their meaning. What I tried to do in that piece and a later iteration of that piece called Deracialization Now, published both on my blog, tuneintoleadership.com. And I say that because that is the blog for my company that I'm the CEO of the Jazz Leadership Project. So tune into leadership as a leadership blog. And I had deracialization now published there, but it was published before that by an online platform called Free Black Thought. And I make key analytical distinctions. Say that there is a complex, a negative and I would even say probably de-evolutionary connection between the idea of race, that there are subpopulations of human beings, as opposed to one human species, there are subspecies. And the process of racialization, which is where you take certain physical characteristics and there are certain attributes that are attendant to those 
phenotypic differences. And then there are certain stereotypes that are based on those. And then there's an essentialization process where that's natural. That's, you know, that's the way things are. And that's the way those people are. And then it justifies differential treatment. That's racialization. And then there's racism, which is an enactment of the differential treatment, right? Based on the ideas of race and racialization, the process, all driven by a superordinate racial worldview. To me, that is the the, the the kind of a systemic perspective that I'm trying to put out here. So people understand it's not just about race. It's not just about racism. You have a process of racialization and you have an overarching superordinate racial worldview. Once you have that picture, you have a much better understanding of what's happened throughout the course of the last 350 years or so in the West as regards race and racism, okay? That's one thing. Then I'm making a distinction between that and what culture is, what ancestry is, what heritage is. And one of the things that I, I say is that you can have, I mean, we go through different understandings of what these concepts are, but I'm now I'm going to lean on someone who would be a great guest for your podcast, John Verveke, cognitive scientist, philosopher, psychologist, who talks about this propositional knowledge. See, when we're talking about, you know, these statements and these concepts, but that's not the only way to epistemology. That's not the only way of knowing. There's also procedural knowledge, knowledge of how to do things. So that gets into kind of a more of a pragmatic perspective, action in the world based on skills. But then there's perspectival knowing, and lastly, participatory knowing, okay? So ultimately, we, we're not going to be able to resolve these things at the propositional level. It's not just through understanding what the definition of race is that's going to do it, or even the definition of culture. It's through our development of certain skills of engagement, of interaction, of embodiment ourselves. The point is that it's through getting more of a perspectival view. You mentioned a multi-perspectival. That's one practice and knowledge, you know, epistemic thing that's really important. And then the participatory where we gather together and, and jazz is a, is a wonderful example of this for me, where you have this dynamic of individuals connecting, collaborating, and playing together, each on their own instrument, with their own responsibility to be the best they can at their instrument. And you have an audience who's engaged with those musicians, and you have this, this, this type of flow group flow, where on stage, they're striving to be in group flow, and they call that swinging. But you're also in relationship with the audience of listeners. And one of the things and one of the reasons why Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray so loved the swing era of the 1930s isn't because that's just the music they grew up when they were teenagers and they were young adults. I mean, that's what happens when you're a teenager, young adult, the music that you're into then usually stays with you for the rest of your life. But because there was this dynamic experience between the musicians and the big bands and dancers on the stage. So you would have this ritualistic kind of thing going on that Murray calls stomping the blues. And when during the bebop era in the 1940s, where the virtuosity quotient, this raised to this incredible level of virtuosity, technical virtuosity, you have more, the, the advent of more of a concert hall experience and where, where the audience was more listening and not engaged in the dance aspect of it. So my point is that 
Propositional, conceptual definitions are important, yes. Procedural knowledge, skills, and how to do things is very important. But perspectival and participatory are very, very crucial also. And it's through that that we can engage with one another. It's not just the conceptual or the or the intellectual. No, and the music is unitive. You know, these are these are shamans, you know, and I like you said the antagonistic thing, you know, great musicians try to outdo each other and they end up falling in love with each other, and it just all turns into one thing, and the audience joins and there's a on the road, there's a place where he, he writes about a jazz thing in San Francisco one time, like the best description of that experience I ever had. Stay tuned for part two of our conversation with Greg Thomas, in which he dives deeply into the power of culture, the contributions of black culture, particularly, and the way in which we can use culture to develop, enhance, actualize ourselves and our collective well-being. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.